you guys, if you guys would, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you do, um, I want you to think about our, your lives. In this, at the end of this chapter, Paul urges the believers at this church to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their work in him is not in vain. Now, knowing that charge, how does your life line up? Are you steadfast or do you sway from the course? Are you immovable? Or is your heart easily swayed by the desires, your own desires? Do you always do the Lord's work with joy? Or do you find yourself working towards your own interests? I think we know the answer to this. We often miss the mark of that charge. For Paul, the solution and answer to this charge, to this question, uh, is simple. It's rooted in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in 1 Corinthians, he spends a large part of this book addressing a lot of problems that the Corinthians church has, problems that you and I have, too. And then he comes to chapter 15, and he gets to this, uh, the height of this book. And it is a long chapter, 58 verses, 58 verses on the resurrection of Jesus. You see, in addressing all these problems that the Corinthians have, Paul knows that their only solution they might have is going to be in the resurrected Christ. He spends so long on it because the resurrection is central to his message. In fact, it is central to our lives. And so that is our subject tonight, the mystery of the resurrection. Listed in our bulletin is, is 1 Corinthians 15, um, verse 51. And I'll, I'll read that verse and, and the verse following. But the majority of this sermon is going to be throughout the, the entire chapter. So 1 Corinthians 15 and 51 and 52 say, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Before I keep going here, I want to take a brief moment and pause and, and talk about the Corinthian church. Uh, here. It, the Corinthian church was a Roman colony. Uh, the Greek city of Corinth was destroyed um, in 146 BC by the Romans, and about a century later was rebuilt by the Romans. And it, and it was, in the time of Paul's writing, a Roman colony. However, not just the Romans lived there. By the time Paul's writing, uh, we now have Romans and many Greeks who have returned. Uh, plus, we, there's a large Jewish population, large enough to have its own synagogue. And because of where the city is located, it is, it is a crossroads for trade, for travel. If you were going anywhere, you had to go through Corinth. And so we had a large, really diverse, multi-ethnic city here. Uh, that being said, it, because of that, this city, it's been said that this city of all the Greek world was the least Greek. 
because it wasn't just Greek people there. And of all the Roman colonies, it was the least Roman because of all these other people there. You see, the city at Corinth was unique, and so was the Christian church there. Uh, being a crossroads, it gave it a lot of power. It was a very wealthy and, popu- a very wealthy and populous city. Um, it was a very important city. It was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but it was morally corrupt. And this is the city to where Paul has written many, many letters. By the time uh, we see references in 1 Corinthians that Paul has actually already written a different letter to them, so this is at least his second letter there. And Paul spends a lot of time establishing this church, discipling this church, because he knows what, what he preaches in this city because of its location, the people there, and the fact that they have travelers and merchants coming in and out. Whatever is said and preached here will be spread throughout the entire ancient or biblical world. Now, uh, to our text. And as he starts writing, like I said, it is a very morally corrupt um, city. Here are just the, these are not all of them. Here's just a few of the problems they had. Uh, in chapter 1, 1, 1, or 1, 11, it says that they had quarreling among them. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11 says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Uh, verse 12, what I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? You see, he, these people were saying, I follow this guy, this guy, this guy. I, I, he's my teacher. No, he's my teacher. They were not unified. He continues to talk about that through the first three chapters. Again, in chapter 6, he talks about believers taking lawsuits against another believers, displaying more disunity. Uh, beginning in chapter 5, he talks extensively about sexual immorality that is found there. In fact, a son has taken his own mother as a wife. Uh, This city is debased. Again, more things he mentions there are this church and the people in the city worship idols. Uh, He mentions uh, adulterers, homosexuality, and even in chapter 12, he pauses to have a long discourse on them misusing the Lord's Supper. Now, Despite their problems, though, Paul makes it pretty clear in that first chapter that this church is a church, and they are believers. Paul writes in chapter 1, I give thanks to my God always for you, because, because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called to the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul wanted to make a, he makes a clear point right there at the beginning of the book before addressing all of these problems, that these are believers. And so that is a first takeaway you and I can take from this. You and I, as I ask that question, how are you standing up to that charge Paul's going to give us here at the end? Probably not very well. But take heart. Those of us who have been called to Christ and those of us who trust wholeheartedly in Christ are believers. And we can take heart. We can be encouraged. You see, Paul's know, Paul knows he can say this because 
of the resurrected Christ. And, and so he spends the whole center, majority of this book addressing problems. A couple chapters he talks about unity, chapters 11, 12, and 13 all address the unity of the church. But then that brings us to chapter 15. He spends, like I said, 58 verses talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And why on earth do we think, you know, we, we've, as we've read the Bible, uh, rarely does anyone spend 58 verses on a single subject. These guys have a lot to say, and they're, they are teaching us. But this is so central to Paul's message, not just his message, but so central to our faith as Christians, that Jesus Christ is raised, not simply spiritually, but he is raised bodily. And so we, we, we spend, let's spend some time here in um, chapter 15. Uh, this is uh, my little section called The Importance of the Resurrection in the Christian Faith. The Importance of the Resurrection. The importance cannot be overstated. Our whole faith hinges on it. Let me read 15 verses 12 through 17. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise, excuse me, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So the first uh, thing of importance there is that our faith hinges on it. If Christ was not raised, you and I, we shouldn't be here tonight. We have no point in being here. Our sins are still on us, and we are still deserving of death and hell before a holy God. You see, it is the resurrection of Christ that has, that displays God's victory over sin and over death. And if without that, he says that our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And so being still in your sins is, is kind of twofold there, right? We, we understand that that means we're not gonna be with Christ one day. We're not gonna be able to be with God, but also that we're still stuck in them now. We have no ability to fight against them. We are still stuck to slavery of sin. And so, beginning in verse 12 through 49, uh, Paul has a lengthy defense of this. He says, if this is the case, then, then everything is, is worthless, but... Let me read from you um, a little bit more. But he says in verse, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says emphatically, this but in fact is an emphatic reversal of what he had just said. He said, well, if this, then this. And this but, in fact, is intended for us to hear, but that is not true. The truth is that Christ has been raised. And then he goes on and tells us something 
very important, something we've heard before in Romans, but we hear it again. He says this, For as by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. We remember that through Adam in Genesis, we remember Adam is like a representative of all mankind. Uh, as Adam sins, sin entered the world through us, through one human being, sin entered the world. And now through one human being, yet fully God, sin is defeated. And he makes that point here, it says in verse 21 there, when he says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. That is also talked about in Romans 5, also in Colossians 2. Now, uh, uh, about the resurrection. Uh, beginning in verse 35. He asked this. Some, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Uh, and with what kind of body will they come? So that he, he's already... Um, talked about people who just outright deny there is no resurrection. He, he makes this logical argument of, well, if there is none, then not even Christ has been raised. Uh, he gives many examples after that. And, the res and now, in terms of, well, if there is a resurrection, if there will be a resurrection, if Christ is resurrected and you and I will be one day, what is it like? That's, the, that's this question. Uh, Paul goes on to use an analogy, right? He uses this analogy of a, of a seed, he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, and perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So he gives this analogy. Now, you know, you've planted things, you put a seed in the ground, it's hard, small, and kind of not, not much to it. You put it in the ground, cover it with dirt and water it, and let the sun shine, and then not uh, much longer. Give it a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and a plant begins to grow, and it looks nothing like that little seed that was there. Paul uses uh, th this analogy showing that there is greater life that comes despite this little seed. And he'll, he'll continue that. If you notice as we look through here, he's going to continue to use the word sown uh, as a sown seed as he begins to talk about our bodies. Now, so... The nature of this resurrection then is, it, there's a nature of it, I guess, for two categories. But first, let's look. This is the nature for everyone, all right? The nature for everybody is one, everyone will be raised on the last day. Though he doesn't necessarily mention it here, uh, this is mentioned in Acts 24, John 5. It's mentioned in Revelation. All people will be raised on the last day. All people will be like this seed that are sown into the ground and raised up. Uh, they must perish. The seed must perish for new life to be born. Um, here, I'm going to continue now to read this section, and then we're going to point some things out here. But God gives it a body that he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. And there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars are different 
in glory. So a brief pause right here. In verse 40, it's, it's simple. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So what is the nature of this resurrection? One, it's bodily, right? We will not be raised merely in spirit. We will be raised in body. And so he goes on in, cha- in 42, uh, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. So in verse 42, we learn something new about this body. Though you and I now, we know sin and death that we can die. We are under the curse of sin, right? We, we still experience the curse of sin even though we are in Christ. Well, this new resurrected body, that which is sown, what is raised will be imperishable. It will be unable to die. Not affected by the curse of sin that we experience right now. We'll keep going. He says, what is sown in a natural body is raised in a spiritual body. So the body is spiritual. It's, it's different. It's bodily but spiritual. Um, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. So Paul's making an argument here. He's reminding us that we will not be like that first Adam, but reminding us we will be like that second Adam that is Christ, a man that is from heaven. We will have bodies like Christ's resurrected body. And uh, verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, as it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so do we get it yet? We, we, he's spent now the, a full page and a half trying to tell us this is, we will be raised in body, a new body unable to be affected by sin or death. Now, uh, jumping down just a little bit, um, well, I'll keep going here at 50. Uh, at verse 52, we learn something new as well. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. So in verse 52, we learn something. Not only is a, a new body unaffected by sin and death, but it is immediate. In a twinkling of the, of the eye at the sound of the last trumpet, we will be changed. In verse 53 and 54, we also learn that we, this body, as we have now probably uh, gathered, will be different than this body. It won't necessarily be exactly the same, but we will still maintain personal identity. Look in verse uh, 53. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, uh, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Now, before I go on uh, to my implication of this for believers, um, I just want to note, remember back in Luke 24, this is kind of a, a, a pause. In Luke 24, Jesus appears in the upper room to his disciples. And at first, they're startled and they think they've seen a ghost. They don't immediately recognize him. But yet, they do. They recognize and they're able to have a conversation with Christ. He speaks to them. He tells them, do not be afraid. And then they, they, they touch his body. Uh, if, if we believe what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians, that our resurrected bodies will be like Christ, we should believe then that we will be different, but still maintain personal identity. They were able to recognize Christ and know this is Jesus. We will be able to recognize this is Tyson. They're different. Okay, so some implications now for believers. What does this mean? He spends a long time trying to tell us this. What does this mean? One, an implication for believers. You should have great hope. You should have a lot of hope. Uh, how many of us, even we just talked about our prayer request right now, how many of us have hurt our bodies? How many of our bodies hurt even right now? Well, that body will be made new and there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. Uh, two, we will have victory over death in general. Uh, 54, verse 54 and 55 say in this song uh, here, this little lyric, death is swallowed up in victory. And oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is an eternal victory over death. The resurrection of Christ ensures your own resurrection, bringing us eternal life with Christ. And not just, this, this will not just be eternal life uh, as Adam could have had it, had sin not in the world. Because Adam was able to sin and die, but remember, we will no longer be able to sin and die. Uh, we learned that from this passage, from Isaiah 25, from Revelation 21. And, and two, another implication for a believer is our victory over sin. That has, I mentioned earlier, two parts. Our victory over sin happens both now, while we are fighting against our sin because of the resurrected Christ, because he is alive and has had victory over sin and death. He now, through the Holy Spirit, gives you the power to fight against it. Fight against sin, though we're not perfect. Though we will fail, uh, we are able to fight against the sins of our own hearts. And so, since this victory over sin is both in this life and the next. This is why Paul believes that the Corinthian church, who he spent 14 chapters rebuking, 14 chapters saying, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that. He believes that they can change because of this. And so can you. And so can I. Now there's also a couple of implications for unbelievers. It's a warning. It's a strong warning. Remember, everyone will be raised on the last day. He doesn't go on to specifically talk about unbelievers in this passage, but let's just think about the implications of this. If, if we must be in Christ to be resurrected and be with him, to be and to have victory over death, if we are outside of Christ, we do not have victory over death. In fact, sin and death now still enslave you. When you are sinning, you cannot get away from it because you can't beat it on your own. 
You need Christ. You need the Holy Spirit to change you, to resurrect both your heart, to change your heart now, to bring this dead heart to one that is living, and also eventually to bring your dead body to be a living body with him. And finally, uh, Matthew 10, 28 uh, teaches that hell is a very real place where people suffer both in spirit and in body. All will be raised in the last day, and we will either be in glory with Christ or we will be suffering in his anger. So what, so what does this matter? Why does any of this matter for us today? Remember, if it didn't happen, if Christ was not raised, what hope do we have? Would we not still be in our sins? Would we not... Would we be able to make ourselves right with him? Would we be able to defeat sin ourselves? He reminds us in chapter 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So why else does this matter? Paul believes that a flawed church can change because of this, based on their new identities found in the resurrected Christ. So, all of these quarrels, the divisions, the sexual immorality, the lawsuits against other believers, the idols, the adulterers, the homosexuality, the misusing the Lord's Supper, all of these things that Paul mentions, he knows the Corinthians can change by the power of Christ Jesus because they have been redeemed and Christ is raised. Now, I think... He gives evidence to this in the book because chapters 12, 13, and 14 all talk about the unity of Christ. So, so why does this matter for you? Because it's the true for you. You and I, whatever sin you may experience, whatever you feel is holding you down and keeping you from God, and believing on Christ and knowing that he has been raised from the dead both in body and spirit, because of his resurrection, you can have freedom from that sin. So, let me ask, what are you struggling in? Does your body ache? Are you tired? Are you tired of fighting with sin? Do you feel as though you will never be free from sin? Then take hope, because you will be. And though this is a mystery, we don't understand how these bodies will be, how we will be raised. It's not a mystery. It's not a question that we ask, will this come to pass? You see, Christ was raised, and you will be too if you trust in him. You will be raised like him. That means your bodies will be new. You will see the Lord with perfect eyes, and you will worship him without sin. You will finally be restored to reflect the image that he has put on you even now, perfectly and rightly. Now, until that day, we have hope that Christ is already changing us. You can fight against your sin today by the power of of Christ. So church, because Christ is raised, and because you will be also, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Christ Jesus. Lord, it is a mystery that he was raised, but Lord, we believe it with all our heart. Lord, thank you for this promise that we will be raised and we will be in a body as we are with you in glory. Lord, I pray for those now who don't know you. Lord, if someone in this room doesn't know you or trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray they would. 
You give us a strong warning that those who do not turn away from sin and trust in you, Lord, will suffer in spirit and in body. God, this week I pray for my church. I pray that the members here at First Baptist Church Fairdale would go out and trust you. Help us to fight sin in our life. Continue to sanctify us and glorify us. Lord, we love you and we need you this week. In Christ's name, amen.